when I first began teaching, I thought the idea of self-care was selfish. After all, the word self is in there, right? And I was I was raised Catholic with some well-meaning guilt. So I thought that, all right, I have to be selfless. But I didn't realize that in order to be selfless and be the best that I possibly could for my students, I had to be selfish. Had to be. It was It was crucial. I could not. Welcome to Hashtag Teacher Life. I'm your host, Victoria Wong, a retired kindergarten teacher, aspiring nomad, and lover of honest and open conversations. This podcast is dedicated to giving teachers a platform to share their stories, and in doing so, create a community where educators feel empowered, can support each other, and together improve the health and sustainability of teachers, one honest conversation at a time. That was Abigail from Toledo. She's a substitute teacher in Ohio, and she gave a lot of insight into her unique experience subbing in a variety of schools. As someone who's taken many days off this past year, my conversation with Abigail made me even more grateful for all the substitutes who have walked into my classroom, especially since the one thing I always procrastinated the most on, apart from sharpening pencils, was always updating my sub tub. Substitute teaching is so hard, and it's no wonder there's such a shortage of subs in our schools. They're educators as well, and they're so crucial towards supporting the wellness of classroom teachers. But from what I've seen, they're less supported and less appreciated. After you listen, I hope you thank a substitute teacher you know, because us teachers would be much worse off without them. Hey, Abigail, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, thanks. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for being on the show. Um, what are five words that you would use to describe yourself? You kind of did this earlier for me. <laughs> sure. Um, they may have changed since then. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say problem solving. That's hyphenated, so I'm going to count it as one, one descriptor. As one. <laughs> All right. I would say kind. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Creative, dependable, and honest. Awesome. Those are great words. Um, and what has your path been in education? Well, it's been pretty eclectic. I graduated from college three years ago from Bowling Green. And I'm watching my friends graduate this weekend. I'm realizing, oh, my goodness, it was three years ago, only three years ago, but also already three years ago, and since then, I've been at a Catholic school in my home area of Dayton, Ohio. And then I moved up to Toledo, Ohio, back in the northwest Ohio area where I went to school. And I really fell in love with, for some reason, the weather here does not give any reason for that. But I guess the people do. And I taught at a Catholic school here, and I've recently been teaching at Toledo Public Schools where I became a daily substitute in March or February from having my own classroom. So I've been in and out of public schools and private schools, both affiliated religiously and not, which has given me lots of perspective on different aspects of education I'm going to talk about today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what are some differences that you found between, you know, 
public schools and private schools? I found that their priorities are different. I mean, obviously, the religious schools are more geared toward a Catholic curriculum. That is, they have both religion classes that are dedicated to theology and history of religion, specifically Catholicism, but also infused in the culture, or at least that's the idea. It wasn't always. For instance, in the Catholic school in Dayton, probably good 85 to 90 percent of the student population was not Catholic, yet we had weekly mass in the like adjoining parish building to the church, to the school. And they have religious classes as well. And we start each day with prayer. So it, it really felt almost forced. But it was bizarre because it wasn't actually in a bad way, necessarily. I didn't hear students complaining about, why do we have to do this Catholic stuff? We're not Catholic. It, it seemed to be accepted. But at the same time, it was like, this doesn't really fit us, but we're not going to complain about it. It was a it was sort of strange, but not necessarily bad. In the Catholic school up here in Northwest Ohio, it's a much more densely Catholic area to begin with. There's at least a Catholic church in every little burg around here. There's several in Toledo. There's one in my hometown, Perrysburg. I say hometown up here, probably my hometown, hometown. This wasn't what I'm using as my home here. And that was more of a Catholic identity with the students as well. But we still had our outliers, so their Catholic identity was very, very strong there. And in the public schools, that's not a thing. <laughs> There's no religious identity, no religious classes. It does come up in topics of conversation in class, especially with your social studies and your reading, which tends to invite more discussion in the first place. But... Obviously, as an identity, that's that's not there. So religion is a, a main thing. I would also say, and here's where I touch on something I'd like to talk about elsewhere in the interview, the availability of dedicated specialists in schools. I'm even talking about like school nurses. And both of my Catholic schools, we didn't have a school nurse available every day of the week because they would travel between us and at least one other school, if not more. We would be lucky in those schools to have a school nurse there three days a week, which I found in the public schools, we have nurses five days a week. So that's great. But we still don't have school counselors there every day of the week. We don't have behavioral health and and things of that nature that really would help out all schools that I was at. Mm-hmm. So neither the Catholic schools or the public schools had like consistent um, counselors or, I guess, social workers or, like, support staff? Nope. It was a better chance of having it in the public schools, but it still wasn't guaranteed. Mm-hmm. And I think and it should be, quite frankly. Why, why do you think that's so important? I think it's important because students go to school to learn, and ideally they come to school ready to learn. They've how they need to eat, they have clean clothes to wear, they have supportive families, they have parents who are attentive and there for them, both physically and emotionally, but we know it's not the reality. And so anything we can do to help students beyond what I, as a general education teacher, can do would be helpful. Yeah. Do you have, like, um, I guess, like a personal story or a specific student or experience that you kind of struggled with because they needed that support, but it wasn't available? Oh, boy. So many. 
I have, <laughs> for example, I have students both this year and the year before and the year before that who have been in prison themselves or have parents or family members who have been in jail. And I, I don't have anybody specific to talk about that I prepared for this interview, but I'm going back and remembering just lots of students, too many students who have told me the same kind of story. They don't have a parent to talk to because their parent has died from a shooting or left because they wanted to marry somebody else or they're in jail or any number of things that just should not be a reality in students' lives. They should not have to be worrying about taking care of their younger siblings and not getting enough sleep at night because who knows what's going on in their home. And that's, that is beyond what I can do to help them. I would love to be able to, as I told you in our phone call, I'd love to wave a magic wand and have all of my students be with adequate means to live, <laughs> both financially and supplies-wise and the people they need to thrive. But that's not how it is. Yeah. What grades do you teach again? Currently, I teach really all over. I've taught kindergarten. I've taught eighth grade. I'm licensed to teach fourth through ninth grade for language arts and social studies. And that's what I've done in my permanent teaching positions. But in my subbing status, as I I'm doing right now. I've taught everything from kindergarten to phys ed to music to eighth grade, all sorts of different things. And you said that you've had students who have already been in jail at those oh. ages. <laughs> oh my gosh, that is yesterday insane. actually. <laughs> I found out one of my eighth grade students who had shown up to school twice that week, counting yesterday. They came Tuesday and yesterday in my four day sub position which was unusual, by the way. I'm usually at a different place every day, but this time a teacher at a school I'd been at twice before specifically requested me all week while she was in D.C. with her eighth graders, and then the rest of the eighth graders stayed behind. And there was actually an, an incident with a student. He and another one almost got into a physical fight after talking smack, I guess is the best way you can say this, as two eighth grade boys. But he mentioned, or the one mentioned, don't forget, I know where you live, to which my student who have been in jail said, well, if you show up, don't forget, I have a gun, and I will shoot you. It was like, whoa, okay, let's get back to our reading packets, people. We got 10 minutes, get together. So I told the principal what I had heard, because that's, that's problematic. And I don't know this kid. I met him twice in my life, but I know that that's not things I should be talking about, and somebody should be aware of that mm -hmm. if they weren't already, and I wanted to make sure they were on my account. So it's, yeah. it's things like that, making people aware. You might not be able to solve the problem yourself, but you have to cover your bottom and make sure that you have mentioned that to somebody, especially if you're a sub, but you won't be back. Yeah, exactly. That's really, I don't even know how I would react to that, like a child saying that, because I teach kindergarten, and I have, like, one student who sometimes, he won't say, like, I'll shoot you, but he'll be like, I'll stab you with a knife. And I'm like, oh, let's not say that. He's like, yeah, that's not appropriate. But, like, when you get, when they get older, like, they know what that means and they're more serious when they say it. So I, I don't even know how I would react to that. It's kind of common now. It's so sad that I, yeah. I know exactly how to react to that. Mm -hmm. But there, there we are. Yeah. So like in those situations, when you 
find yourself needing one of those like mental health supports or like a counselor and there isn't one like how does that impact you as a teacher like what can you really do um, there isn't much i i document that's a favorite word in the education industry for a reason because you have to document everything and that's one of the reasons why because if you don't have the support you need available right away you can at least point back to a conversation that you had or overheard a student saying it's like okay on this day at this time this happened so at least when i the counselor comes back on thursday and it's monday right now i can say well this happened you know mm-hmm. yeah do you feel like more pressure or responsibility or guilt when there isn't that support staff to try and take their place or do something extra for sure that's and that's um, that leads to something else that I want to talk about in the interview as well. The the amount of pressure that we have, both from the powers that be that oversee education as a whole, and also within the individual schools, to be all things to students. Yeah, exactly. That's definitely like we are everything. <laughs> we do so much, and people think we just stand in front of a bunch of kids and teach them, but like. We are their teachers, their nurses, their friends, their pseudo-parents, their counselors. Like, we feed them, we clothe them sometimes. Like, we do everything for them, and people don't really understand that. Yeah. Um, And I also, did you mention earlier that, like, 85% of the students at the Catholic school were not Catholic? Right. So why do you think that their parents sent them there? Likely because... The public school district around them had a reputation for being unsafe and academically under par, which is the academics was supported by the report card that came out from the state, which is, I think it's currently a D rating, unfortunately. <laughs> Sad times, but, and I found the same thing to be the case up here in Toledo. The the public school system, unfortunately, does not have the best reputation. So all of a sudden, you've got all these different private schools that are now, they have junior academies, which go down to as as low as sixth grade. So they're trying to, to siphon off these kids in, in middle school to then um, get them ready for their high school. That's a joint. And I have seen religious ones. Those are the big ones. As I say, it's a major Catholic area up here. So there's St. Everybody Catholic schools. Not all of them have, like, designated middle schools to go on to high schools, but some do. And I'm seeing more and more, especially students with the financial means to do so, going off there instead of going on to the public school high school when the time comes. And it's sad, but I understand. I get students in my subbing positions all the time who would ask me, would you send your own kid here? And most of the time, I have to be honest, and I would say not if I had another choice. Mm-hmm. That's Sometimes such a sad reality. But it is. It's such yeah. a sad reality because I get to walk away from that school at the end of the day. These these kids don't, and many of these kids don't. Mm-hmm. Sad yeah. times. That, that's probably why there's such an influx of private schools and and students going there instead. Do you think these private schools are actually better? Like, are they better than all of the public schools for the students and for the teachers? I think it really depends. Sometimes I would say yes. Sometimes I'd say no. In the case of my first year teaching, where so many of the students were not Catholic, I think had we had a more 
stable and effective administration? I think it could be. The way it stood, I would have to say no. And that's what made me so sad and inclined to leave because I saw what the school could be, but wasn't. Like, almost like we see in students. I, I see what the student could do, but, but does not for whatever reason. They choose not to. They, they don't know how to ask for help to do so, but it's that sort of situation. And the one that I was subbing or teaching at my second year, I would say yes for some. It, it really depends on the person. I, I know it's cliche, but it's true in this case. It, it depends on the student. It depends on the support system that they need because many of these private, especially Catholic schools, do not have your full-time counselors, your full-time nurses, even a cafeteria, for heaven's sake, with lunches every day. So if that's something that you can cope with, if you have the means at home to pack lunches with your students every day, then sure, if they don't particularly struggle with behavior problems, then sure. If they don't need a dedicated special education teacher, then sure. But if they do, no, absolutely not. You need the the governmental support, quite frankly, that you're going to find at a public school. But on the other hand, is it worth risking your student getting bullied or getting into the wrong crowd? It's I can see where parents are coming from. It's a really tough decision to make yeah absolutely what about for teachers because you've mentioned like you have had experiences with unsupportive and supportive administrations like have you seen differences between the public and private schools no I wish I could say yes (laughs) and that's one of the sad things I found out when I went from the private school world to the public school world. I thought that since it was public, it meant like de facto administrations are going to be supportive now. That's not the case. So I wish I could give you like a clear cut answer here, but I quickly found out that's not true. And even in the same district, you're going to have some differences. That's what I found at subbing. And I've had several schools that I go back and say, you know, if I could have started here instead of the school that I did, things would have been so much different. I wouldn't be pretty much disbarred from returning to this public school district. And why is that? Like, what was it that you saw at that school that made you feel like you could have thrived there or done better? I saw a culture of fairness that that was throughout the whole school. I, I could see that Teachers didn't say things to me like, don't ever work here. Yes, that actually happened several times. Teachers didn't tell me, you're so young. You should get out of this while you still can. And that happened too. Or if you come to actually work at this district, not knowing that I already had, then make sure you don't come here ever. (laughs) The absence or presence of comments like that gave me a clear picture listening to the students themselves and how they reacted. Sometimes they would make fun of the principal and not even like in just seventh and eighth grade where kids are want to do that kind of thing. But even like first grade, second, third, fourth, where they still mostly like school and they want to please their teachers and they want to do well and they don't have the whole teenage, I don't care thing going on yet. For the most part, you have your outliers everywhere. I know. But I have learned how to 
read the building, as it were, by listening to the comments the students make, the teachers make, and even the principals themselves. I've, gosh, it's, it's hard to put into words, but the difference between a school that you want to be in and a school that you don't is both obvious and elusive, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, there's definitely a lot of like smaller messages that you get from teachers or I'm sure things that you see when you walk into a school and I mean, you've been to so many schools and subbing is so hard. I can't imagine like not knowing what you're going to expect walking into a room or waking up every single day. So I'm sure you have to look around and find all of those clues to kind of give you a better picture of, you know, how the staff are going to be like and what the students are going to be like. Like what are (laughs) like what are some things that you look at like when you are walking into a new school and you're trying to figure out what is your day going to be like? At first, I tried to learn the layout of the building as much as I can. And by now, I'm two months into this, and I'm about to end my subbing tenure, as far as I know, <laughs> with this district or anywhere else. I'm hoping to get a full-time position somewhere. But by now, I have been to 20 out of the 40 elementary schools in our district. I counted the other day. And I've been keeping a calendar. And each day I will rate my experience. I'll say where I was, what grade I was, whose class I had. And I will give them a smiley face, a kind of like a meh face or a frowny face with a skull and crossbones. And that means I will not go back to the school no matter what. Even if I don't get paid that day, I'm not stepping foot in that building because it was so chaotic. I had no idea what was expected of me as a sub. I got the idea that the other teachers were just at their wits end as well. And not just because it's May (laughs) that could do it to anybody, but I mean, in general, uh, how do they feel that they're being communicated with? Are things sprung in them at the last minute? Like yesterday we had a kickball game with the mud hens, which is really cool, but I had no idea about it. And my whole schedule was going to change for that day. And that's the school I've been in for the last three days. So I felt pretty secure in knowing, all right, so-and-so down the hall is going to help me out here and making a whole new schedule in five minutes. If I was at a whole other school, I have no idea what's going to happen, but I've learned different schools have different reputations. For instance, on Tuesday, when I first started this kind of like mini long-term sub-assignment for the week, my human resources person who calls me every morning called me that morning and said, all right, we need you at this other school today. And this other school had earned my skull and crossbones rating a month before when I subbed for their second grade. And I said, oh, my goodness, do you have anything else? Because, number one, I knew that this teacher had requested me all week. And, number two, I'm terrified of going back there again. So if she had anything, I would take it. And she was like, nope. I said, okay, I'll take it, I guess. And she called me back like 30 seconds later, and it was like, you rang? She said, yeah, I saw they even put in all week for this school. And I was like, thank God. (laughs) Because I know that school. I know some of the teachers there. I know some of the kids. I've been there twice now. So I know the general layout of the building. I'll be able to lead these kids in a fire drill. I'll be able to lock them down if need be. Not just the big stuff. Like, the little stuff is, it's nice to know where you're going without having to ask somebody every five minutes, where's the cafeteria? Where's the library? Where am I going with these kids? So by now, I've built up a following of, not following, a a log of which schools I like and why, where to return to. But at the beginning, I didn't know any of that. So it was very much a learning curve. And I had to be able to get comfortable really fast with asking, how do things work around here? I would ask the neighboring teachers that, and I would have to 
not care if I was bugging them that much because I had a job to do. So I love that you have a lot. <laughs> oh yeah, I. It's a visual one too. I, I still keep it. I wish I had it right here to show you, but it's in my car actually. I feel like something like that should exist. Like there are substitute databases, right? But I feel like there should be a resource for substitutes to be able to get an idea of what schools would be better experiences because like just from the past two years, my school really struggles with finding subs. And I feel like having a database like that would hold schools and districts more accountable for making sure our substitutes have, I guess, resources that we are supporting them and that we're getting them to come back. And in the end, like what happens is like we do need subs no matter what, and we're running out of them. So like we do need to fix that problem of, you know, making subs feel more welcome and more supported. But I don't know. I feel like a database like that or some sort of like rating system for schools would be really helpful. It's subjective, too. Like my perception of the school could be totally different from somebody else's. And it depends on the class, I found out. After my first month or so, I was really impressed with this school because I subbed for their fourth grade class and it was amazing. And then I came back next month, I did sixth grade, and I was like, oh my gosh, this was not the same I had before. I'm really disappointed. That's what happened to me the other day. I came back and taught for somebody's sixth grade when I taught their fifth grade last time. And it was, my gosh, one year. It was night and day. Yeah, I'm sure. Unfortunately, but I would probably still go back to that school, but I would hesitate to come back to the middle school band. Mm -hmm. Do you think that, so when you think that a day went well or that a school is a good experience, is that mainly based off of the students that you taught? Or do you kind of think about like whether or not teachers came and reached out to you or were checking in on you or admin was helping you out a little bit? Like what ultimately helps you make that decision? A few different factors. I have, if, like, yes, the students themselves, they play a little part. Honestly. <laughs> I have whether or not administration was helpful, yes, because that's really the biggest problem when it comes to student behavior. Not the behavior itself, necessarily, but, okay, how much, how much power do I have myself right now without calling anybody in this unfamiliar classroom? to be able to handle this and keep the rest of my kiddos on track. How much do I have to depend on other people to do this? How much time is it going to take them realistically to help me out? How are they going to help me? Did the teacher leave sub plans? <laughs> That's, it seems like a small thing, but it's really not. I, I come equipped with books. I have worksheets for them to do. That's mostly for like third to eighth grade reading. When it comes to, say, first grade. I have to do their math, their science, their everything. I don't have stuff for that. So I have to make things up on the fly. Honestly, if I don't have something for science, it's going to be a Bill Nye or Magic School Bus uh, for me because I have my own Netflix account, so I can easily pull that up in absence of plans. But I'd rather not. I'm not really a let's-watch-movies-all-day sub. I like to – I follow the lesson plans to AT if they're given to me. And if they're not, I can come up with them pretty fast. But if it's something outside my wheelhouse, it's – gonna be netflix i'm sorry if you didn't want it to be that way you need to leave some plans yeah <laughs> no, i there. can't even i can't even imagine like walking into a new classroom with absolutely no sub plans and having all these kids for like nine hours and you're like okay let's try and figure out what to do like especially if they are younger mm -hmm. because they their attention span is shorter you have to have more activities within 
that are like shorter and you just have to plan more for those. Like making my set plans is so annoying because we have probably like 12 different blocks throughout the day that you would have to like give something to the kids to do. And so then it's just like paper after paper or activity after activity. And like when they get older, you can kind of like give them maybe like a packet or like something where they can just sit down they can read things so they'll like know what to do. But with the younger grades, you have to just, I can't imagine subbing and not having anything ready <laughs> for like kindergarten. I kindergarten for three days at a specific school. And gosh, I'm so lucky I had the kindergarten teacher next door because she was wonderful, wonderful lady. And I still struggled. I've never done kindergarten before in my entire life. I was like, I'm, I, no, nope, I cannot do this for a living. <laughs> I'm glad you could do the younger ones because they scare me. What was it that was so challenging about the kindergarten class? They they always needed me for something. <laughs> they were so needy. They needed me for for this and for that. It was like, just give me a seventh grader. <laughs> yeah, no. I I... Them. Don't get me wrong. They were adorable. I love them to bits. But Wow. I'd, yeah. Kudos to you. They are always yelling out my name. I probably hear my name yelled out like a thousand times a day for like the smallest things like, Miss Wong, Miss Wong, I found a crayon on the floor. I'm like, oh, okay. Thank you for letting me know. Miss Wong, someone didn't flush the toilet. I'm like, okay, <laughs> then just, just go flush it. Or like, Miss Wong, that person looked at me. I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> Please stop. Yeah. I got there. Yeah. What's been, I'm curious then, like what has been maybe like the worst subbing experience you've ever had? And then maybe like the best also. Oh gosh. And both of those things are, it's hard to pick, but let me, let me do it real fast. Okay. Start with my worst to get that over with. I think my worst was last Tuesday. This might have even gone in my top five of teaching overall in my career. We're talking three years worth of days here, so got a lot to choose from. But this is fifth grade. This was actually uh, the second experience in that school that I loved to be at last time, come to think of it. And this class was a challenge, and I was told over and over again from teachers all throughout the day, this class is a hot mess. It's not you. It's like, well, thank goodness somebody told me that, because I was starting to wonder around lunchtime, because they did not listen to anything I said. I wish I was exaggerating, but this teacher literally had a microphone that she used to talk over them because they do not listen to anything you say. <laughs> I mean, you had a few, and I I made sure I, I told the few constantly, I appreciate you so much. Thank you for listening. Thank you for doing what I asked. But it was, woof. I ended up calling the principal five times on that class that day. I can't count. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I, I can count, I should say. I can count the number of times that I've called the principal in the same class. Like, in a week, maybe? But in the same day. Same day. That's, like, once per hour. That's ridiculous. Gosh, they were a challenge. We didn't switch like they were supposed to have. And I'm sure that having a sub and not switching, it was out of the routine that threw them off. This was... Week before last, it was Teacher Appreciation Week. So first week of May was what it was. I told them, you know, you you disappointed me today. I came to this school thinking it was going to be a great time. You're going to get a lot done and have a smooth day. But wow, 
And they were like, yeah, that's just our class. Like that, I'm sorry, that's sad. That's real sad. So I got through the day. I survived. I let them know how it went. But, yeah, it was rough. Another school, I kind of, I got the feeling right away it was going to be disastrous a little strong, but a challenge. When I have these classes, I'll say something like in my note to the teacher, I will say, this class was an invigorating challenge for my classroom management skills. Heads up, everyone listening out there, that is code, but the class was a hot mess. I'm trying to say this as professionally and constructively as I possibly can, but chances are that if I'm writing that, you already know it. So I don't feel that bad. I was going with this. Oh, yeah. A different school, different grade. First time I got there, I had a mother and two sons. I, I don't think they were enrolled yet, but the younger son, who was, couldn't have more than three years old, he was tearing apart the office. He was overturning chairs. He was running in and out of the like the back behind the desk area. Oh my gosh, this principal came out and she was like, you you have to go wait outside. I know you need my help, but I've got kids coming in here. We can't be doing this. You have to go wait outside. I was like, oh boy. Unfortunately, the rest of the day lived up to my expectations. It wasn't all like that, but it, it wasn't smooth. So those were the ones I did not look forward to going back to. And I only went back to the the office destruction school once. And I'm hoping to never again, sadly. But the best. Probably this week. I like being in schools more than once, like one day at a time, because I get a feel for the school itself. I get a feel for the students, just kind of how everything flows. And this school flows well. Um, they take students outside like every day. No matter what. I mean, if it's raining, no, they can't. If it's under 40, no, they can't. And we've had more than our fair share of under 40 days this year up in Toledo, unfortunately. But everything else, we take them outside. I love that. They prioritize going outside. What a concept. Even in 7th and 8th grade, they have their 20 minutes of, I call it a fake recess, because it's not anywhere around lunchtime, but they still go outside. So I call it fake recess. I love that. It's like a rule. They go outside. That's it just blew my mind because nowadays, especially in middle school, it's like we're too old for that. We got 15 minutes for lunch and it's right back to work. And we expect them to sit down at all times. But here I didn't have to do that. That was it was great. They missed me at the end. They're like, we're going to miss you so much. I was like, I know. I don't want to go turn this key in and leave you. That that's a nice feeling. Other than I can't wait to turn this key and leave this school. Not the students necessarily, but the school itself. I don't want to ever come back here. I had those days, to be honest. Um, let's see, second best? Probably anytime I got to teach music. As I, I think I shared with you, I'm going to go back to school next year to be a music teacher. And it was nice to get my feet wet a little bit and learn what's the realities of being a classroom music teacher. Sometimes I had my own room, sometimes I was in a cart. Personally, I kind of prefer being on a cart, which I didn't expect, because I got to just roll my way out of the classroom when it was time to go. Because sometimes when you have a tough day or even a tough period, you want to leave the room itself because you just, you need a break. But when you have your own room, it's a little hard to do that. When you have a cart and you can just peace out, you know? I had a great time teaching phys ed. This was, again, in a school that I've been in many times, so that, that makes a difference. And... I'm not a PE person, just like I'm not a kindergarten person. I'm I'm just not. I'm not athletically inclined. 
I was like an A for effort kind of kid in phys ed when I was a student myself because I just, I didn't get it. I didn't understand the rules. I didn't know what was going on. I just, I ran, I played the best I could. So I got there. There's some plans, but they were intelligible to him, I should say, <laughs> to this teacher. It's like, I, I can't figure this out. I would need to watch this happen, like in front of me to be able to begin to figure out what he's talking about. So we played kickball for everybody all day, and we had a great time. Mostly because I didn't have to tell the kids every two seconds, please have a seat, please get to work, please be quiet. Because that wasn't a thing. I had to actually encourage them. Do not sit down. We're going to run around be active for half an hour. It was great, except for my first grade class with two fights in half an hour. Ugh, that wasn't great. But the rest of the day went smoothly. So I've had unexpected good days. And even ones where I know, all right, this school has its act together. I know this class is going to be solid. I can't wait for this day. Because I've had those. I've even had days where I show up and it's like, I don't really know what I'm doing, but I'm going to make the best of it. It turns out to be awesome. So it's been eclectic. Uh, (laughs) It's been a variety of experiences. Um, I was curious, like for me personally, like teaching is so hard, but the joy that I get out of it is like connecting with my students and getting to know them because I'm with them in the same classroom for the whole year. Like what, I mean, you're not in the same classroom, like you're going to different schools and different classrooms within those schools. So like, what kind of joy do you get from being a substitute teacher? Because for me, like I get it from making those connections. So what do you get from being a substitute teacher? I like the novelty. Um, I, one of my strengths that I repeated interviews over and over because it's true. I have a strength for building connections with kids really fast and that comes in handy a lot when you're subbing because that's all you get you have really fast because you might have 35 minutes with a class and that's it you'll never see them again if you're like in your upper grades so the ability to come on and say hi i'm here for today maybe I'll be back tomorrow i don't know let's have a great day today it, it goes a long way i like to be able to talk to students to find out what their individual interests are and Go from there, just the same as if I had a permanent class that I was seeing all the time. I like to be able to say, all right, your teacher told me that so-and-so was really responsible. I need your help today. And I like to, whoa, lost my computer. I like to bring in the ones that I think might be a challenge just from observing them during homeroom. I'll approach them and say, all right, I need your help today because your teacher's not here. I'm new to the building, so you need to show me where the cafeteria is, what the gym is, whatever we have going on that day. And it doesn't always work. It's not a guarantee, but it kind of gets them on my side. So I'm not like automatically viewing them as a troublemaker because some adults do, quite frankly, seem to happen time and time again. And I like to be that fresh person who's not assuming they're going to be a problem because maybe I might just be the one person to turn them around. As I say, it doesn't always work. But it gives me a shot. Yeah, I love that. But like on those hard days when you like leave a school and you're like, oh, my God, I'm never coming back. How do you kind of take care of yourself mentally after those days and then get up and get ready for another school where you might not know what to expect and it could be just as bad? Sure. I work out a lot. I I use exercise and here's a good place to dip into my self-care spiel. (laughs) 
Um, I've learned to prioritize self-care when I was teaching full-time because that was difficult too in its own way. I had my days. I was like, I do not want to come back to school tomorrow, but I had to, obviously. So what was I going to do to make myself feel better even in the moment about that? Usually I I would exercise it out. I would sometimes I go to the treadmill. I have a gym in my apartment, which is nice because I don't have to go to a plan of fitness or anything else, which are fine, but I have to pay for those. <laughs> along with my rent so this comes to me for free with my rent so i get to do that when it's nice out i go for a walk like every single day that i possibly can it has been real rainy here lately but today it's nice and sunny so when we wrap this interview i'm going to go for a walk and i found out that just basic taking care of yourself seems really easy but when you're in a profession like this and you struggle with anxiety as i do it's not, and it becomes kind of monumental. I, I don't know if you can relate to this, but I bet people out there can, so I'm going to hit on this a little more. When I first began teaching, I thought the idea of self-care was selfish. After all, the word self is in there, right? And I was, I was raised Catholic with some well-meaning guilt, so I thought that, all right, I have to be selfless. I didn't realize that in order to be selfless and be the best that I possibly could for my students, I had to be selfish. Had to be. It was it was crucial. I couldn't not. <laughs> and on Facebook there was that whole trend about saying that things like bath bombs and chocolate are they're not self care. Like, they can be, they can be part of it, but they're not the hard parts that you have to prioritize. Things like saving your time and money to be able to buy healthy ingredients and make healthy meals rather than just ordering pizza or Chinese again, which I did a little too often in my first year because it was convenient. At the end of the day, especially in your first year of teaching, you don't really want to cook. You just want something to eat right now and go to bed. <laughs> and I did that too often. And I paid the price physically. I did not exercise as much as I needed to. I gained weight. I wouldn't say an unhealthy amount, but I was still heavier than I wanted to be. And that's, that's how that happened. And being able to come to terms with what you're doing in your life to cause you problems is not easy either. But it's it's critical. That's the hard part about self-care. And again, setting aside the time and money to go see a therapist, if that's what it takes to get you on track. I had to do that. I had to get used to calling it therapy, not counseling, but therapy, because I myself have a stigma that I have to get rid of about therapy itself. Because I was raised the idea that therapy is for crazy people and crazy people can't be teachers. Right. I had to deal with that. Right now I'm in the middle of my therapy homework for my session on Monday. And I have to write out an argument that I had with my abusive boyfriend back in early college. And that relationship haunts me to this day. I write down my nightmares for my, my therapist. I listen to my friends when they tell me their concerns. Like the time back in January, my good college friend visited me from NYU. And she saw me in... Probably the second worst state of my life. The first test to go to the time I was with that boyfriend, but this is the second worst. And she was the one who made me say that I needed to see a doctor ASAP. And not only that, I needed to realize that for myself a long time ago and show up for myself. And that, my friends listening out there, you need to be able to do as well. It's not easy, but that's self-care. The bath bombs and the chocolates and the ice cream, that can happen, but they're just really the cool down to the hard workout of taking care of yourself. So that goes along with subbing. It's not, it's easier 
and harder than than teaching full time. And I say that because it's easier because I don't have all the the hangover of teaching every day. I don't have to grade. I don't have to plan for, all right, this person can't sit by this person, but that person can't go there, and this person can't sit here. You know, the seating chart struggle. It was a struggle because almost everybody in several of my classes I've had throughout the years couldn't sit by everybody else, and that's pretty hard to do. It's hard to four corners, kids, when you have 10 people who need to sit in different corners. I don't have that many corners. So I don't have to do that as a sub. I don't have to grade. I don't have to go to conferences. I don't have to talk to parents unless something really bad happens. But that hasn't happened yet, thank goodness. I don't have to go to staff meetings. But on the other hand, I don't know where I'm going to be every day. It was such a nice thing not to have to get the call at 7 in the morning from my lovely human resources friend who I like talking to. Don't get me wrong. But it's nice to just know where you're going to work every day. It sounds simple. Even if you're throwing up every day on the way to that place, at least you're going to the same place every day. Is it a trade-off? Yeah. Is it worth it not to throw up every day? Yeah, <laughs> it is. I'll take the call at 7 a.m. to go somewhere different over throwing up on the way to the same place. But still, that self-care has to come into play. It's easier to keep it up now because I'm home most days by Four, maybe 4.30 if I had to stay and hash things out with teachers or if I wanted to. I've had experiences before where I wanted to stay after school and talk to the teachers a little bit because I'm a social person and also because it's pleasant. What a concept. So I don't get home until like 4.30, but even that's plenty of time to make dinner for myself now. That's healthy and I've planned out. I've done meal planning. I've gone shopping to my budget. So that's been nice. But it's easier to do because I don't have to spend those hours at home grading and planning and all the other stuff you have to do as a teacher that you don't necessarily think about from the outside looking in. Make sense? Yeah, I completely agree with what you said about self-care being like doing the hard work. And I think people are just now starting to break down that kind of like fluffy picture of self-care as being like bath bombs and, you know, drinking wine and laying on your couch. Like there's so much more to self-care. And I've definitely, like I found myself really trying to tackle that this year in my second year of teaching when I got to those breaking points. And I realized that like I was not mentally okay teaching and I had to do something about it. Um, Like did you have kind of a breaking point where you realized like, oh no, like I need to stop what I'm doing and I need to really start taking care of myself? Like, was there a specific instance that happened? Or did you kind of just get to a point where you're like, oh my God, something's wrong and I need to do something about it? Um, Not my first year, but it wasn't as toxic as this, this past year. This year, the, the breaking point, I kind of had two. The first was when I went home for Christmas. And I realized that I couldn't eat meals, really. My mom is a fantastic cook, better than I will ever be, quite frankly, to her chagrin and mine. But I could only eat, like, bits and pieces. I couldn't eat a whole meal, and I hadn't been able to for for weeks. I just kind of lost track of it because it became my new normal. I couldn't – I was losing weight, noticeably so. Like, I was, I was too heavy before, and now I was going back to the other end of the spectrum because – I couldn't eat very much, and what I was would usually come back up, not on purpose. It just, my, it was like my stomach 
had its own stress issues and it didn't like to eat. So when it got things in it, it just, it rebelled, shall we say. It wasn't pretty. And I got to the point where I was able to eat things by, say, New Year's. But by that point, I was going to leave in a few days. And going from not being able to eat to eat was a process, but it was easy, easier than the other way around, which is once I started going back to work again, I was in the same toxic place again. Well, now <laughs> I had to break back out of my eating habit because I was in a much more stressful situation. I was back to throwing up all the time on the way to work. I I think I told you this in the film, but it was almost impressive. I could pull over on the way, throw up in a bag that I kept in my car, like multiple bags and throw up in the same one in my car and then get back on the road in like two minutes flat, which I realize now isn't impressive so much as concerning very much so. And I didn't go to a doctor about this because I, I kept it in the back of my mind. I was like, yeah, I really should see a doctor about this, but just it didn't happen because again, self-care that's something you have to be on top of. You have to making doctor's appointments. You can do it online. You don't have to call and talk to somebody. And that's not a particular um, area of concern for me. I've never had a hard time calling somebody like in real life. But my point is it wasn't hard to make a doctor appointment. I could just go online and be like, boop, here we go. But in order to do that, I had to have established a primary care doctor, which I had, to my credit. Again, do that if you haven't. People listening out there, that's an important thing. So when it comes to a crisis point like that, you have somebody that you've seen and who's familiar with you to look back on. So then came my friend from New York. She and I went to school together at BG, and then she's doing her master's degree at New York University. And she came back to visit me for the tail end of her winter break. And that's when she saw just how bad things had gotten for me because we talked on the phone, we texted, we've Snapchatted, but I hadn't seen her in person in months, months and months. And she saw me not being able to keep down anything I ate. And she was like, you need to go to the doctor, like yesterday. And it should not have had to take me coming here and telling you this because you are 26 years old and you need to be on top of this for yourself. She's a good one for giving me hard truths, shall I say. So, yeah, to that point, finding a healthy friendship, that's cool, too. Sometimes having a friend who's brave enough to tell you things you don't want to hear but need to is real important as well. And she was right. I am well into my 20s. I needed to make the decision for myself, but it took that that catalyst of somebody telling me, I'm worried about you. You need to get checked out for this. So I did. Turned out to be um, uncontrolled like acid reflux. Again, still dealing with it. And undiagnosed anxiety. I've only been on medication for my anxiety disorder since mid-January. And I have already seen such a difference in my life. If that's something you struggle with, you should get that checked out too. Run, no walk. So that's my story. I, I did have a crisis point that was like, all right, this needs to get taken care of. Yeah, thanks for sharing all of that. Like, That's not really always easy to talk about, but I was kind of in a similar boat. Like, I struggle with depression, and I have never really been on medication before because, well, I never really thought it was real. I was always like, eh, it's just me. I'm just lazy and unmotivated. And then I just started on medication about, I think it's been like two months now. Two or three months? Yeah. No, three months. And it's just been like a total world of a difference. 
And I was like, oh, I didn't realize I could feel joy in my life. This is great. Like, <laughs> I love medication now. And there's so much stigma <laughs> against it. Like, people are so like, the first. Yeah, no, like, I remember my mom was like talking to my sister behind my back. She was like, Victoria is going to become a drug addict. Oh my gosh. Like, I don't want her to start doing this. Or like people will say things to you like, oh, you know, medication is a good thing to like start working on taking care of yourself. And then eventually you can transition out of it by, you know, meditating more and sleeping more and eating healthier. And I was like, those are all really important things to take care of yourself. But there shouldn't be so much stigma against just taking medication when you might have an anxiety disorder or you have like a mental illness. It's the same thing as like taking insulin for diabetes. Like you shouldn't say to someone who's diabetic, like, oh yeah, like let's just, you know, you really shouldn't be taking your insulin. Like you should be doing all these other things because, you know, it's not really a disease. Does that make any sense? Like, did you, did you feel a lot of relief when you, started taking medication and started seeing those effects? I did. I I haven't shared with my parents what I've been doing. I still don't. I still don't know. My sister does, though. And when I went to my doctor appointment and my doctor asked me, have you ever thought about going on medication? And I said, you know, my, my therapist has um, talked to me about it. She's asked me to talk to you about it, actually. But I haven't really thought seriously about a no because I'm under the impression that having anxiety is like, it's not real. And if I am feeling that it's just because I'm weak and surely I could handle this myself without any drugs. And she was like, no, it's not how it works. So why don't we start you on Zoloft? And she put me on 50 milligrams what I'm taking now. And she said, maybe we can try going off of it once you're not in the same job anymore. And both of us assumed at the time that that would be not be until summer. But it's not a life worked out. <laughs> I was actually out of that job way sooner than either one of us thought, which I told her. And she said, do you want to try going off of this? And I said, honestly, no, not not yet. And I, I really don't foresee any time that I would like to at this moment because – it's helped me feel a lot more like myself again. I haven't felt this much like myself since college. I I kind of miss that person. <laughs> I I don't want to I don't want to stop is what I'm trying to say because I was able to handle situations more both in teaching and out of teaching that would have put me into a panic not so long ago. I don't know if it's like a placebo effect or what, or if it's actually the drug itself, but it's helping me feel more capable and thus do things that I wouldn't have been able to do more calmly. I completely relate to that. Yeah. I think I started on medication to get through the rest of the year because I had like a really bad breakdown in February where I almost left in the middle of the year. And that was when I went to my therapist and my doctor and I was like, I think you know, maybe I might need this because I don't want to leave my students. Like I want to finish out the year and I think I might need a little help with that. But now that it's been a few months, I definitely feel, I I feel the same way with like feeling more like myself, if that makes any sense. Like I completely agree with what you mean. And it came in the form of like all these little things. Like I actually, when something exciting happens, like I'll actually let myself feel excited 
Or, you know, when something negative happens, like it's not the worst thing in the world. And it helps with like, you know, anxious thoughts that like usually spiral through my head, like I can brush off a little more easily. Like, I definitely feel more like myself. Like, what are those small things that you've noticed that make you feel more like yourself? Like, you used to, I guess. Um, those, the anxious thoughts that you mentioned, that was a big thing for me. And mm-hmm. especially in classroom situations where, okay, so this was my first year of teaching. It was very end of the year, probably like this time in the year in 2017. 17? Yeah, 2017. I had a student who really could have benefited from more specialists than we had available, which was to say zero. But his parents did not want to put him in the public system because they thought he would get bullied mercilessly. And they were probably right. Again, one of those hard situations that I would do not envy them for. And he had been picked on by his classmates to a breaking point. And I tried to stay on top with the best that I possibly could, but you can't see and hear everything that goes on. You just can't. I know you should be able to, but you can't. So he reached his breaking point, and for him, that was standing up, throwing his desk on the floor, throwing anything. He was like a tornado, like throwing anything he could get his hands on in the room. And so at that point, the best thing I could think of to do was to gather my class quickly and just lead them out into the hall. But it was very difficult to come to that decision because at the time I was like, I was starting to panic myself. And then my other, another side of me was like, don't you dare. You are in charge of sixth graders. You cannot panic right now. You terrible teacher. And another side of me was like, gee, if you panic because of this, what do you want to do when somebody comes into the room and kills them? Then what? It's going to be your fault. Like all of this does not help you stay in charge calmly of a situation that isn't actually that dire. Yes, it needs to be dealt with, but is anybody going to die? No, especially because you got them out of the way. It's going to live. going to be fine. If I had been on Zoloft then, I think it would have been easier for me to come to that place of calm a lot faster because I didn't have that revelation until well after I got home. I called for backup. Our class statue of Mary ended up being beheaded. And after school, I took it to the office and I said, you know what? I don't want this beheaded statue in my room. That's just got to be bad luck. Sorry. So I left, I left it there. This, that makes me laugh to this day because it wasn't a funny situation at all. But that that part was funny. Just that little part. So things like that. That's kind of a big dramatic instance. But today, or not today, like now, I should say, I've often heard from my family that I'm just being dramatic. And in truth, I am, but I don't, I can't control it, really. And so it makes me feel disappointed to know that I disappointed them by just being dramatic Abby again. But I've seen much less instances of that, of them saying that to me since I've been on this. And my parents don't know, again, they might suspect, but... They know that I'm going to therapy, but I don't know I'm a medication. They might just assume or suspect they haven't brought it up to me because I have brought it up to them. And they're they're kind they're very respectful of my boundaries, much more so than before, like a couple years ago, which I really appreciate. My sister knows. I asked her not to share, but apparently my brother 
has mentioned that I seem a lot more chill these days. This was back in probably March. And my sister was like, yeah. <laughs> she didn't mention the medication, but that's, that's why. I am more chill these days. I feel more chill. I feel more in charge of my life. And really, I shouldn't. My contract with this district is about to come to an end. I'm getting paid through the summer, but after that, I don't know what's going to happen with my life. No idea. And last year, when I had no idea what's going to happen with my life, I was miserable. It was an awful, awful summer. I loved the job I was doing, but I was getting paid $9 an hour. You can't live on that. You can't pay rent with that. I didn't know what was going to happen. That's before I got a job at this district. We all know what happened with that. But the point is, I should be panicking right now, but I'm not because I know I'm going to make it work somehow. Yeah, I love that. I'm in the same boat where I am a perfectionist and I love planning and I love knowing exactly where my life is going. And like I am leaving, I have five more days of teaching and I'm done. And everyone's been asking me like, oh, what are you going to do next year? Like, what are you planning on doing over the summer? And I don't have really like anything solidly planned. And usually like previous me would have been like, oh my gosh, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. I'm such a failure. Like I am just, I'm a horrible person. Like I've wasted away my education and all my parents' efforts. Like I'm just, I'm disappointing everyone. And now I'm kind of like, oh yeah, I don't know, but it's cool. (laughs) I'll figure it out. And I think if I had seen myself a year ago, like, or if me one year ago had seen where I am now, she would have been like, what the hell are you doing with your life, Victoria? (laughs) Get it together. (laughs) So I completely get where you, where you're coming from. Yeah. Isn't that nice to not panic? (laughs) So nice. It feels so nice to kind of feel like you're in control of your mind. (laughs) I got summer plans at least. I'm going back to the same job. I'll be able to save that money this time, which will be nice. Yeah. That'll help me out later on. But as far as like full time work plans, I I got nothing. Not only that, I'm not that concerned about it because that's not going to help me. Now I realize that. Before I knew it like in my head, yes, I know worrying won't help me, but I'm still gonna do it anyway. Now I know it's not gonna help me and I don't do it as much. As much. Yeah. And it's <laughs> like it's kind of like it makes it worse when you say are like worrying about something and then you have that voice in your head that's like you don't need to worry about this. Like, I don't understand. Like, it's not helping you at all. But then there's that voice that's like, oh, shit, like, I'm worrying, but I know I'm not supposed to worry. Stupid me. Like, why am I still worrying? And then it's just like, yeah. it's cyclical. Oh and it gets and so Mama much worse. Worrying's not going to help you. It's like, I know, but how am I not supposed to? It's like, I am <laughs> worrying anyway. So, like, now I feel bad about worrying. So now I doubly hate myself. <laughs> like, it makes I'm worrying it so about much worrying. worse. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Oh, I'm glad you understand. Yes, I completely understand. I'm sure so many people understand. Like, I've talked to so many teachers who are on medication for anxiety or depression. Like, at one point, I was hanging out with these two teachers who I work with, and I was telling them that I was going on um, antidepressants. They were like, oh, what are you going on? I was like, oh, I'm trying out Lexapro. And then both of them were like, I'm on Lexapro, too. (laughs) We're like, Lexapro buddies. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Which is so sad, but I mean, <laughs> everyone everyone needs either therapy or medication or like something to help them. We just need to get to that point, I guess, to realize it. Um, so you move on to like what you were talking about with um, 
the perception of teachers? Because I'm really interested to hear what you have to say about that. Sure. Okay. So along these lines that we've been talking about self-care, the question should be asked, why should we need to engage in such rigorous self-care beyond what adults should do? Like adults in any profession should be going to the doctor, making sure they're eating healthy, making regular checkups and all that. Like everyone should do that. That's not self-care. It's just basic. But why do we have to go beyond? What is behind these rising statistics of teacher anxiety and depression that you're just talking about? Why the Lexapro buddies, in other words? And since I graduated, I've been very unpleasantly surprised to realize how little that the country I grew up in values education and those with important roles in it. And I wonder all the time, how much of my anxiety comes from my actual anxiety disorder? How much comes from my job? And where do they overlap? And I don't have an answer, by the way, for anybody in the same situation out there listening. So sorry about that. But just having those questions themselves is progress to me because I've been kind of like in a a fog of just worrying. <laughs> I've been in a fog of worrying about I'm not doing well in this job, but I'm not sure how much of the job itself is feeding my struggles here, but how much of me is affecting my job. It's like, where, where does one stop and where does the other begin? Again, no answer, if, but if I could begin to unravel this, this knot here, I might point for the societal pressure to be, again, as I said before, all things to our students, up to and including laying down our lives. Let's say we had a school shooting. Am I actually prepared to give up my life to save my students? I don't want to have to answer that question. I don't have kids myself, but I do have family and friends that I don't really want to part with right now at this point in my life, and I'm kind of disgusted. No, I'm very, very disgusted. The powers that be, the best they can come up with is saying, here, here's a gun. Why can't we, teachers, be more of the powers that be? That's my question, among many. Yeah, I completely relate to what you were saying about, like, trying to figure out how much your anxiety is coming from teaching rather than just, like, having anxiety, because that's something that I've been trying to figure out with, like, you know, am I just really depressed? Like, is this making me feel worse in the classroom and making me a worse teacher? Or is, like, teaching making me more depressed? Or, like, you know, how are they really interacting with each other? And, like, how am I – I'm really curious to see how I'm going to start feeling after I leave this job and after I leave this profession to see, like, how much of it was coming from the job. Um, but, yeah, and I also – like, I completely agree with, like, what you said, that we do need a voice. <laughs> we should be the ones making the decisions. Like, no, Betsy DeVos, having 40 children <laughs> in a classroom is not better for anyone. Like, there, no. I don't understand why there are people who are telling us and, like, making these big decisions within education who have never set foot in a classroom before. It is insane. And then, like, we are expected. It also drives me insane that, like, people call us babysitters and say that our jobs are easy and then now with all these school shootings they're like oh yeah here like here's a gun your job is also to be a security guard for your school in your classroom now like this is what teachers are supposed to be now and I don't know there's just so many different I don't know there's so many different ideas of what teachers are supposed to be and you get different perceptions from like the government telling us what we should look like and parents and then also like other teachers 
I guess, putting up this perception of what teaching is really like, like when you started teaching, like what did, did you study education? Yes, I did. What did you think it was going to be like? Like what was, what was it for you to step into the classroom and then see the reality of teaching, like in comparison to what you expected? That's something I'm struggling to come to terms with because I'm afraid of the answer. And when I say that, I mean, I'm afraid of the answer because I'm afraid it somehow means that I really shouldn't be a teacher. But maybe it just means that I was naive, which is entirely possible when you're 21 and you've never taught before, but you've you've studied theory and listened to professors who say the most maudlin, saccharine things, but totally seriously. So you believe them about how much you affect a student's life because you know, you know that, you know, in your heart that it's true because that's what you're going into this after all. You're signing up for sleepless nights and people who are going to vilify you, but you're going, you have to find your why. And they, they made it sound so easy. But what they didn't tell us was you're going to have students, like I said, who come to you totally not ready to learn, and it's your job to figure out what to do about that real fast while you watch the other 20 kids in your room. And I wasn't ready for that. I thought teaching was going to be like it was growing up in my white, middle-class Catholic school. It's not like that. I'm not saying I want it to be. But I am saying I do want the the secure feeling that I had as a student. I want to be able to provide that for all of my students, no matter where they come from, no matter who their parents are, if they even have parents to begin with. I want to be able to provide that. And knowing that I can't always for everyone ever, every day, every time, that doesn't sit well with me. Does that mean I shouldn't be a teacher? I don't know. It means that I might not ever be satisfied as a teacher, but I don't think it means that I shouldn't be one to begin with. But that that's kind of deep, but <laughs> it's true. I think that's something that a lot of teachers struggle with because we all go into teaching because we care, right? And we want to make a difference. And we are so excited and passionate. Like you can't go into education and still stay in education if you didn't have a passion for it. Like you would you would leave so quickly because it's just so exhausting and it takes so much out of you. Like you have to care to be an educator, but then you're right in that. Like, I don't think any teacher would ever feel satisfied because there, there's just like an infinite to-do list. Like no matter what, you can always do more for your students, right? You can always get to know them more. You can always differentiate a little more. You can always like support them like emotionally a little more than maybe you are doing. So, like, I definitely, you know, I never feel satisfied. I never feel like I'm doing enough. But then we go in thinking that, like, we're going to make such an impact. And then when you step into the classroom, you're like, oh, no, there's so many more things that I'm supposed to be doing that I don't feel prepared for. I'm not making enough of an impact. Therefore, like, I'm not successful as a teacher. But it's so sad that, like, the reality is that, I don't know. I think we have to like redefine what success really looks like for teachers because there's just too much to do. Like it's impossible to do everything that we can for our students. And 
Like if we expect ourselves to do that, we're just always going to feel like failures, which I mean, I think we do. <laughs> yep. That's, that's where a lot of my struggle came from this year. And the fact that I, I didn't feel trusted. I felt, I just had this realization like 20 seconds ago and I want to share it with you. I feel more trusted as a sub than I did in my full-time position this past year. That is so sad. That's real sad, but it makes a lot of sense. A lot of sense. Not necessarily by teachers, but by like the general office staff and the principals. They trust that I know what I'm doing and I'm going to come in and do it. And they don't have to hang on me every two seconds. Whoa. Okay. Today's revelation. What was it that made you feel like they didn't trust you at your previous school? I was always just being checked on, shall we say, and talked about. When I say talked about, I mean between the principal and the teacher with whom I shared a class. She taught the math and science. I did the language arts and social studies for my seventh grade and her eighth grade. We would switch in the afternoons. She was my um, coordinating teacher, I guess you could say. Not really a co-teacher. But she and the principal were very close. And I knew there were things shared. And little by little, my responsibilities started to go away. Like, they took away the computer cart. I was blamed for things that I didn't do. I didn't have much of a voice to stand up for myself because I'm the new one in the building. I got that. I got that much. And I just, it was really hard to find a foothold in a place where the expectations changed and were not communicated. And I was blamed for the disaster that happened because of that. That That's a whole different subject that doesn't really need to be hashed out in this interview. But it is a sad point to make that, yeah, I, I feel trusted and respected more as a stranger coming into these schools or if not a stranger, than somebody they see like once or twice a month than I did by people I saw every day and work with and talk to every day. But it's also comforting because now I know that it, it isn't me. I shared the music, gym, and art teachers with this old school and the school I was in for four days this week. So I got to re-catch up with them. And I would ask all of them, I would say, how are they? How is my class? Because I miss them, quite frankly. Yes, they're a little stinker sometimes, but I still love them. And they would say, they're they're doing fine. You know, they're some of them are leaving. Some of them are going on to such and such school for eighth grade. Some of them are staying here. Some of them left already. And just like, yeah, that it's just a miserable, miserable place. That's what the gym teacher told me. I started to think, all right, now that I've had a little distance from this place, maybe it wasn't just me. That's a world of difference in itself, because once you get to thinking that that the problem is you, like you really are to blame for this, you're just not picking this up fast enough, you just didn't understand what I said, once you hear that over and over and over again, you start to believe it after a while. But then, when you have some distance from it, you realize, no, that it, it wasn't me. Seriously, it wasn't me. <laughs> So I shouldn't take it that personally. Yeah, I completely relate. And I think so many, like, that's the problem that I kind of want to address, that so many teachers have all these struggles and, like, small failures that we experience throughout the day, and we think it's all our fault. And 
it's not just like our interactions with our students because like when you're teaching so many kids and you're trying to get them to do so much like you have like dozens and dozens of like mini failures throughout the day like you're teaching a lesson and you see like a couple kids who aren't listening that's like a mini failure like you're not fully like getting them engaged so it's so easy to think that it's yourself and that it's your fault and it's just so hard on top of that to have like the people that you work with and the people who are supposed to be managing you and supporting you telling you or like sending you also these very passive aggressive (laughs) messages that you are not doing enough and like telling you that as a teacher you have so many responsibilities they're telling you that they don't believe in your ability to do those responsibilities that's so hard I'm really grateful that like my administration has I've never had that experience with my admin, but like I can't even imagine that would have been so stressful to have that going on. It was. Yeah. (laughs) Hence the vomiting on the way to work. It all makes sense now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was talking, I forgot who I was talking to. I was talking to another teacher about how they went to the doctor about like exhaustion and stress and then she was having all these symptoms and they could not figure out like what it was. And then they realized that it was just because she was a teacher. <laughs> They're like, Oh, you're just a teacher. Oh, okay. Like this is all just teacher stress and mental illness just from being a teacher. And it's not like some specific other like disease or other condition. Like it was just all from being a teacher. Like I feel like there should just be a condition. Teacheritis. <laughs> like you're just <laughs> constantly. <laughs> teacheritis (laughs) throwing up on the way to work could be a symptom of teacheritis (laughs) yeah it's a symptom of teacheritis that was exacerbated by being in a very very wrong place for me and several other people apparently yeah Uh, well it's almost time to wrap up a little bit so I've been asking everyone like if you ran into a teacher or you're talking to someone who is having a rough time what advice would you give them Oh, boy. I would tell them, first of all, to pinpoint where the larger problem is, because that's an issue that I had. I It was really easy to get hyper-focused and have, like, blinders on in teaching, that it was difficult to see the big picture. And when that happens, it's also hard to see what can help and who can help you. Who do, Who specifically should I talk to about this problem that seems really big and overwhelming, but if I just asked this question, maybe it'd be easier. I would say, okay, maybe it's Friday, you can get to that person till Monday. In the meantime, find something you enjoy doing that does not have to do with work. You have to maintain a life outside of work. Yeah, you're going to feel guilty about it. I did too, it's okay. Because <laughs> I did. I thought if I wasn't working or thinking about work or thinking about something how to improve what I was doing at work or grading or planning that I wasn't an adequate teacher. And that was a trap that I was getting myself into that only I could get myself out of. So learning how to be your own best advocate and all the things that means. So again, prioritizing self-care. You got to do it. It's not just a cutesy thing. Sometimes it's going to be ugly and hard and gross, but it's still worth it. You got to do it. See. Communication, being your own best advocate, 
and remembering your why. I know it's cliche, they use it all the time in staff meetings, but it's for a reason, because especially when you're at a staff meeting, at the end of a tough day, you have to remember what it is that keeps you coming back into the classroom each day, besides the fact you need money to live on, as everybody does. But find your specific why. The, the kid that you talk to every day about Hamilton, or who makes you laugh because he makes slime and it never turns out quite right, and he tells you about his troubles in the kitchen and just something like that. Or they're always bringing in stuff for you to try from their cooking class, like I did last year with my seventh graders. And honestly, they're better cooks than I'm going to be. And I told them so, but find, find the little stuff, the little silly stuff that you think doesn't matter, but it really does because it, it keeps you going every day. So those three things. I, I would have to make sure I tell them those three things. That is great advice. I wish someone had told me that when I had started teaching for maybe like earlier this year. Maybe some of this you just have to figure out for yourself. I don't know. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being so vulnerable with sharing your experiences and like the struggles that you've had in the past three years and all of the advice and wisdom that you've learned. <laughs> thank you for inviting me to be on this. I hope I can help somebody else get a head start on some of these things I wish I would have learned years ago. Thank you again for listening to Hashtag Teacher Life. You can support this podcast by liking us on social media, sharing with your friends, and most importantly, by having more of these open and honest conversations with teachers around you. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, you can go to teacherlifepod.com, click on Be a Guest, and fill out the form. I'd love to hear and share your stories as well. And if you have any feedback or would just like to chat, you can always find me on Facebook or Instagram at TeacherLifePod. I'm Victoria Wong, and remember, teachers, your voice is important, you deserve to be heard, and you are absolutely enough. See you next time.